Thank you guys so much. That was really powerful. Um, I hope, yeah, absolutely. I hope that you guys come to church on a Sunday morning expecting to actually encounter the living God. Um, and I hope that's an expectation for every Sunday, every time you walk through these doors, that you anticipate actually encountering God. Um, and, and what I'll just say briefly is that there are no casual encounters with the living God, all right? When you encounter God, you are transformed and you are changed. And so as we approach Sunday mornings from one week to the next, we walk in these doors expecting to encounter God, and we walk out of those doors because of that encounter transformed because of what he, who he is and what he has done. I just hope that's an expectation for us every week. Um, this team is doing a great job of just leading us in song. And so this morning, as we transition from worshiping through song, we're going to worship the Lord um, by hearing his word proclaimed. And so I'd invite you, if you have a copy of God's word, I, I sure hope that you do, to take that out and um, go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 40, where our, our message will be coming from this morning. My name is Doug. I'm one of your few, and it is a real joy for me to be able to open up God's word with you this morning and to be able to preach it. And so as a church, we are, um, we've been studying Deuteronomy for the last number of weeks, and this will be sort of the final message in our series. Um, we're going we're gonna to obviously shift towards Easter and a different series and kind of get back into Corinthians. We'll return to Deuteronomy later in the year, um, but this is really a, a really appropriate passage for us um, as we um, kind of come to the end of our time in Deuteronomy just for now. We'll, we'll come back to it, but this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 40. And what I would ask is, I know you just got comfortable. I see pens and hands and Bibles open, but as I read God's word, if you're able, I would just invite you to stand as a way of honoring God's word this morning. And so whether you're here or at home, um, I'd invite you to stand if you're able, and I'll read God's word for us. This is the word of the Lord. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There was no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier to give you their land for an inheritance. As it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven other. Therefore... You shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command to you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. 
and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Church, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as it comes to us. Lord, we recognize your spirit is here among us, and we ask simply, Lord, that you would use your word, which we believe and proclaim this morning to be eternal and absolutely true, Lord. We ask that you would take this word here in Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 40, Lord. We ask that you would take this word, that you would write it on our hearts, Father, Lord, that you would use this word to shape us as your people. We thank you for your word. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You may grab a seat. Well, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love this time of year. I just love spring. Love spring. I love it because there are things that you can see coming to life as you look out in nature. I love it because our days are longer, right? Amen to a long day. Man, those cold, there's a sign that I don't want to speak too you know, soon here, but there's, there's a potential that the cold, dark days of winter are behind us. Just that possibility gives me hope. I don't know about you, but I love it. Now, most of, I could just start preaching on that. Shoot. Don't get me started. Now, of all the things that spring has to offer, perhaps, and I, I would, I'd be willing to guess I'm not the only one in here who could say this, but one of the things that I most appreciate about this time of year is March Madness. All right, I'm sorry. I know. I had to go there. March Madness. I just love, my wife was gone early this week for a couple of days, and she came home, and I had the kids, and it was, it was a wonderful time. And she came home, and I, you know, she was think, okay, what can we do for the next couple of days? And I just looked at her, we're sitting on the couch, I said, baby, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be watching some basketball for the next couple of days, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if I can get an amen in the house, Kyle, amen, got it, all right, there's one. Just love March Madness, I love it for so many reasons, I love that there's so much basketball to watch, I love the storylines that emerge out of March Madness, the underdogs and the upsets, I love just a number of days filled with good basketball. I love filling out a bracket. I mean, the first time in my life that I had interest in a game played by St. Bonaventure. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I could sit there and watch LSU and St. Bonaventure play and be absolutely delighted. I love March Madness. I love watching March Madness. I, you know, I heard recently it's been 21 years since the Big Ten has actually won a a championship, which I did not realize. I mean, there's so many good teams that have come over the years. 21 years since the Big Ten has won a championship. That's pretty amazing. There's so many different factors that go into March Madness. I mean, things can just swing in any different direction. Injuries. Teams can just have a bad day, right? Matchups. This year, especially, we see COVID-19 as being a significant factor in how the tournament is played. So many variables. Yet, as you watch one game after another, as you see one team and you, after another play in the tournament, there is one thing that every team, every player shares. And it is a tremendous devotion to the game of basketball. A desire to be playing in the ship. Every team shares that. A devotion to play basketball. 
and a desire to be victorious. Well, in today's passage, we see, I'm turning the corner, I'm making the connection right now, okay? We see this theme come to the surface, devotion. And what we'll see as we read and look through this passage is that we will see that this devotion, yes, it's significant. We see it all over the place in March Madness. But for us as the people of God, devotion can simply not be overstated. It is so important. In fact, what we'll see this morning, the big idea of the text is ultimately this. Devotion determines destiny. Go ahead and just look at your neighbor through your mask and say, neighbor, did you know devotion determines destiny? It's true. It's true. And we'll see that this morning. Remember, if you are new to the series, if we've been studying through the book of Deuteronomy, this is a sermon that Moses is ultimately delivering to God's people before they take possession of the promised land. And as you can imagine, the, the amount of anticipation as Moses stands before the people of God, they were anticipating what he might see for a couple of reasons. One, they are about to see the fulfillment of a promise that was given to them by God to their fathers years and years ago. They're actually able to step into the promised land and experience the fulfillment of that promise. What is Moses going to have to say before they do this? Secondly, you can imagine their anticipation because what we know to be true, what Moses had just told us in chapter 3 was that these are actually his final words to the Israelites before they cross the Jordan into the promised land. These are the last things that their, their leader who had been with them, this, this mighty man of God who had, who had helped God use to deliver out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of bondage in Egypt, through the wilderness, these are the last words their beloved leader is going to say to them. You could imagine just these Israelites, as, as Moses is preaching God's word to them, as he is speaking to them, these people are on the edge of their proverbial seats, soaking up every single word. What is Moses going to say? What's he going to say? Well, the main idea of the book really points, it's, it's really sort of a, this passage this morning, these nine verses are really sort of a summary of ultimately what Moses is going to say from chapter one through the end of Deuteronomy, a wonderful summary. Prior to his death and in preparation for their life in the promised land, Moses wants to make it abundantly clear that these people remain devoted to God and his word for the prosperity of their life in the promised land. And that's ultimately what our goal is this morning, is what we look at the text. That's what my goal is. As a church, we're in an interesting, Israel's in an interesting place in their history, time of them as a people. And as a church, we are likewise in an interesting place uh, as well, right? There's lots of questions that are ahead of us. Leadership is committed to answering and providing uh, answers to many of those questions. There is direction that we are trying to uncover and discern as we move forward and, and think about what faithful ministry looks like here at Parkview Church in Iowa City for the years to come. There are questions and things that lie ahead of us. But this must not be a question for us as a people. As a people, whatever the direction looks like, as it becomes clarified and as we bring unity around it, what is that we are a people who remain devoted to God and committed to his word. Must be. As we look at this 
passage this morning, I want to point out three things that, that are going to help. What Moses does is he, as he tries to strengthen these people's devotion to the word, he does ultimately three things. Try to do them this morning as well. The first is he points out the unique nature of God. The unique nature of God. The second thing that we see this morning is that he also points out the understandable response of God's people. And thirdly, we'll look at an unbelievable promise. So unique nature of God, understandable response of his people, and an unbelievable promise. First up, unique nature of God. Verses 32 through 40 represent sort of the climactic moment, as I was saying before, um, here in chapter 4, not just of chapter 4, but really the whole of Moses' first sermon. A theme that is absolutely critical, not just to understand the book of Deuteronomy, but really we have to understand, it helps us understand and make sense of the entire Bible. The incomparability of God. Israel's God, folks, is in a class of his own. He's downright unique. There never was, is, or will be anyone like our God. And because he is their God, there is a unique nature about them now as a people. They have ethical and, and missiological purpose as a result. It's unique to them. Notice the stylistic device of rhetorical sort of questions throughout the passage that, that drives this point home. Did any people ever hear the voice of God as you have? Has any God attempted to go and take a nation for himself? And of course, he also states it directly several times. There's no other besides him, verse 35. The Lord is God. There is no other, verse 39. Throughout the text, we see time and time again, Moses' point is that there is none like Yahweh. He's in a class of his own, completely and utterly unique. Three different ways he shows us this. The first thing that, that speaks to the unique nature of who God is is that we see that he is a speaking God. God is a speaking God. Look at verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out in the midst of the fire as you have and still live? The voice of God speaking out of the fire. It's interesting that he says you hear because those listening to Moses speak were, were not actually present at Sinai when the voice of God was speaking out of the fire. Yet he says you did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard? They weren't there physically, Moses' point is, but yet they remain under his word just as their fathers did. The word spoken to their fathers is a word spoken to them. Because God's word is eternal and is true. Did anybody hear this God speaking? Folks, this is one of the unique characteristics, one of the defining features of the God of the Bible, is that he is a speaking God. This is what gives us great hope as a people. You just read the Bible from cover to cover, and you will see time and time again, it's what the book is, God's word speaking to us. I think of 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, when he confronts the pagan priests at Mount Carmel, the, the difference between the false god of Baal and Yahweh, the, the true god, was that Yahweh is a speaking god. All day, everything within their power, if you remember and familiar with the story, the, the prophets of Baal are, are limping around the altar, crying out for their false god. That, it tells us in verse 29, as, as midday passed, all day they are trying to get their false god to give them an answer. 
As midday passed, they raced on until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, we're told in verse 21, 29. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Folks, those are haunting words for a people who are committed to serving a God who's silent, who doesn't speak, doesn't respond, doesn't hear their cries. No one answered. No one paid attention. But when the fire falls from sky and consumes Elijah's offering, it serves as evidence that Elijah, when he spoke, was a prophet of the true God, a a mouthpiece of the living, speaking God. He's unlike the false gods. Why? Because he could speak. Jeremiah 10, 5, compares the idols of his day to to a scarecrow in a cucumber field. My goodness. They can't walk, he says, and guess what else they can't do? They can't speak. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, says this. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. Mute idols. They had given their lives to the worship of of gods who could not speak. It's not so for God's people. Why? Because Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the one true God, is a speaking God. He had related and and redeemed these people in a way that was unlike anything the world had ever seen before. And his speaking to them was a great demonstration of his love for them. And it is for us today as well. As you study the God of the Bible, the one true God, it's the thing that should jump out of the pages at you, is that this God is not silent. The one true God does not hide himself from us. He speaks. He reveals himself to us. This is a wonderful grace, a wonderful grace that we don't have to kind of Grope around our lives, looking, listening, trying to search for some word, some truth, something to hold on to. God freely reveals himself to us through his spoken word. One of his classic works, Francis Schaeffer, confronted the philosophers and the thinkers of his day. Atheists who, in in their search for values and for meaning, found only silence on the other end of their journey. I mean, that is a terrifying thought, searching for meaning in life, but only finding silence on the other end. Well, Schaefer challenged their pessimism and, in fact, argued that God is there and he is not silent. It's one of the defining characteristics of the God of the Bible. And this is a tremendous source of hope for us as a people We stand up here weekly, every Sunday, opening this book and proclaiming it because God is a speaking God. You come here, I would guess, every week because why? You want to hear a word from the Lord, a word spoken from God. Isn't it a tremendous to provide hope for you to know that as we consider the, the challenges and the the temptations that we face in our life, that as God looks around and surveys our world, our nation, our community, and he sees things play out, that he has something to say about them. 
right? So as we walk through these doors and we come from different places of life, we come with, with different temptations, different pain and loss and brokenness. Folks, this is our hope that God has something to say about that. As we look at the hate, I think of just even in the recent weeks, some of the, the crimes and the, the violence that have been directed towards the, the Asian American community in this nation, just, just unbelievable. God has something to say about that. And for us as a people, as we look at the, the things that we face as a culture, it's what gives us strength and hope and faith. God is not silent. Whatever you're facing this morning, whatever challenge is in front of you, whatever reason that you have that maybe teeter on the, the brink of despair, God has something to say to you. That gives us hope. Secondly, we see not just as he is a speaking God, I'm going to try to go a little faster. He's also an active God. He's a speaking God. He's an active God. Look at verse 34 and 35. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? Just think of the, the activity that's involved here by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Look at what God has done. Consider all that you have seen him do with your own eyes. Consider both the Sinai Theophany, the exodus from Egypt, the whole of Israel's recent history is one mighty act of God. No other people in any other place have ever witnessed anything like this. Moses' description of Yahweh's activity again reveals his unique nature. His rescue of Israel from Egypt is unparalleled and unprecedented throughout history. And the divine power that it displayed is simply awesome. God had not simply spoke to them in a unique way, in an awesome way. He also redeemed them in a unique and awesome way. And this, this gets at one of the fundamental things we, the Bible teaches us about God's nature, is that God exists apart from us. If we think about how mighty and strong, there is no one higher than our God, right? When we think about all of who God is, how powerful he is, enthroned in heaven above, he is apart from us. But the wonderful news about this God is that he is also active with us. He is both of those things simultaneously, apart from us and with us. God declares in Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He, he, he lives in a high and holy place, but he also makes his dwelling among the lowly and the contrite. Again, what a wonderful source of truth. This is an act of God in our world. Tremendous amount of hope. If you're here this morning and you're hurting, God's words to you are not just good luck. Figure it out. Rather, the Bible says he draws near to the brokenhearted. This ultimately is our source of hope for renewal as a church. If God wasn't active among us, what, what would there be to renew us as a people? The renewal, this year of renewal that we're in as a church, 
is contingent on the fact that God is active in our midst. And it's a commitment to say, whatever he's doing, I want to be a part of. So he's a speaking God. He's an active God. And finally, we see that he is a loving God. Look at verse 37. And because he loved our fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. All of the speaking and acting by God, we're told, is the result, and this is really good news, is the result of his love. An acting God. Those two things by themselves could not necessarily be good for us, right? Because who knows what he might say? Who knows what he might do? But he's also a loving God. He loves us. This theme of love for Israel and their ancestors is unique to the book of Deuteronomy. And it's an axiomatic love. While it is offered as the motivation for what God is up to, there's, there's really no attempt to provide an explanation as to why. It's simply a self-evident kind of love. It's the reality of the heart of God. He is a loving God. One commentator points out, if someone were to ask, why did God love Israel and their ancestors? The only reasonable answer would be because God chose to. Because he chose to. Because it's in his heart and it's who he is. Church, we serve a unique God who speaks to us, who acts. He's active among us, and he loves us. So how do we respond to that unique nature of who God is? And let's look now at the second point, understandable response of God's people. That's who he is, according to this passage. How ought we respond? Well, let's just go back and look at those three points. He's a speaking God. He's an acting God. He's a loving God. How, how should we respond to the fact that God speaks? This is going to be pretty obvious, okay? Hopefully, you figured the answer out already. God speaks. We should listen. If the God of the Bible is a speaking God, then his people ought to be a listening people. It's obvious, right? He, he speaks, we listen. Look at verse 34. Heard his voice speaking out of the midst of the fire. They, they heard his voice. He let you hear his voice. Verse 36. They heard his words. God is a speaking God. We ought to be a listening people. Easy enough, right? Wrong. In fact, I would say this is one of the the biggest and most significant challenges that his people face, and I would say it's just grown over the years, the challenge of listening to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work, Life Together, emphasizes the need for us to be a listening people. So often we think we need to speak, give an answer, fill our life with noise, but Bonhoeffer says, a people who can no longer listen are a people who ultimately will experience spiritual. And I would say, I mean, he, he wrote this, I think, in the 1930s. I would say, if that was true then, how much more true is it today? Because we are filled in a world full of noise that is clamoring for your attention, 
and your affection virtually every minute and second of the day. Current author uh, Brett McCracken has a book called The Wisdom Pyramid. Now, I'll confess I have not read the, the book. What I did do is look at his pyramid and read the back, and I figured, I don't think I need to read the book. <laughs> I think I get it, and I agree with it, you know? But I, would, I, I probably will read it. It was probably good, okay? Sometimes I do that. Anyways, the, the premise of his book is he, he, kind of, he, he kind of likens wisdom to like the food pyramid that many of us probably are familiar with um, as a way of sort of helping people develop healthier habits of knowledge intake, Okay, so just imagine a pyramid at the, at the bottom, the most foundational, important thing, the thing that ought to take up the most energy, the thing you ought to listen to the most, the Bible, God's word. The next sort of rung is the church and tradition. And then as you move sort of up the pyramid and it gets a smaller amount of resources, energy is nature and beauty is next. And then the next one is books, good books. Then, then following books would be internet. And then can anybody guess what's at the very top of the pyramid? Anybody want to take a guess? You don't have to be quiet. What do you think up top? Oh, Beth. Oh, that hurts. No, not pastors. What is at the top is social media. Social media is at the top. And what he suggests in the book is that what we have, that that ought to be how we sort of structure our lives. That, that ought to be the things, the amount of energy and time we give to listening to those things. But what we've done as a people, and what I would say, I know I'm tempted to do every single day is to take the pyramid and flip it upside down right and i would just encourage you as maybe a step of action after this is to just do an audit of your day using those categories the bible church and history nature and beauty books internet social media how do you spend your time what do you give your ear to and it's not a small matter if Bonhoeffer is right and our inability to listen is what leads to spiritual decay, then folks, this is important stuff. But it's also to remember that the, the, the Hebrew understanding of listening wasn't just the idea of letting sort of sound waves enter our ears. Rather, the Hebrew understanding of listening well was hearing, taking in content and information, and then doing and those two things, hearing and doing together, is what made up the Hebrew understanding of what it means to listen well. And so we don't want to just intake the Bible. We just don't want to be heads on sticks, right? People who have good knowledge and understanding of the Bible. We want to be people whose hearts are transformed and whose lives live lives that have been transformed through obedience, by obedience to him. So the first thing is God speaks, we ought to listen. Secondly, God acts, we should believe. Look at verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. If I had a pen out, I would underline that you might know. All of these amazing things that God did in the history of God's people. The, the rescuing from them from Pharaoh's hand, the, 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 the signs and wonders, uh, all of the things that they got to see him do was done that they might know that he is God. It's one thing to hear about something. It's an entirely different thing to see it. And as they saw it, their strength in this one God of the Bible, that their faith was strengthened. They would believe 
that he is who he says he is. It's one thing to just hear about it. It's an entirely different thing to see it. Thirdly, I'm just going to go a little faster now. Thirdly, God loves, so we should love. How do we respond to God's love towards us? We return it with God. Look at love for God. Look at verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. Again, that would be a phrase I would underline. Lay it to your heart. That the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. What a powerful picture. Know today, therefore today, and lay it to your heart. If you were to just look at the meaning of this word in the original language, it, it, lay it to your heart is such an interesting phrase. But really what, he, what he's trying to say, it's this idea of turning, returning or, or turning back. So as God's love is directed towards us, to lay it to your heart means that you turn it around and you reciprocate it back to him. That you return his love for you with your love for him. That's what it means to lay it to your heart. God loves us. He tells us as much. He shows us as much. The only understandable response to receiving God's love is to turn it back towards God himself. That's what it means to lay it to your heart. Return his love. At the end of the day, following Jesus, Jesus says it so much himself in the Gospels, is, is comes down to this idea of love. Love that came to us when we were not looking for it. And as we receive this love, it generates gratitude and humility and commitment to honor and to love in return. It's this basic principle that we see throughout the Bible that love births more love, which results in faithfulness and obedience and devotion to God. These are truths that ultimately transform us from the inside out. This is the only understandable response, and I'm using the word understandably. Oftentimes, we can think as if this is a radical response. This is an exceptional response. That's a response maybe that the preacher would make, or that the pastor, or somebody who serves in ministry, or somebody who's been walking with Jesus for years. Folks, this is the only response that makes any kind of sense to the fact that God speaks to us acts among us and loves us. This is the only understandable response that there is. His devotion and his commitment and his, his radical love for us should produce in us love for him. In fact, as we see it, when we get back into Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, this whole idea is sort of, uh, is sort of captured in, in what would become known as the Shema. These words would become a daily prayer in ancient Israelite tradition. They'd be prayed morning and evening as sort of a pledge of allegiance or a confession of their faith. Also a, a hymn of praise. It would become a constant part of their life so that they would remain devoted to this speaking, acting, loving God. Finally, let's just, as we close, I want us to, we've looked at the unique nature of who God is and we've considered the understandable response, the, the only understandable response. Finally, let's turn our attention to an unbelievable promise. 
an unbelievable promise. Look at verse 40. I'll close with this. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. Again, if I had a pen, I would circle the word that. Therefore, based on everything that he's just established, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. You shall be a hearing people and a doing people. In other words, a listening people. That it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land of the Lord, your God, is giving you for all time. So the promise is that when they are a people who are devoted to God, as expressed through their devotion to him and their commitment to his word, that it will go well with them and their children in the land that the Lord has promised. We've seen that devotion to God and obedience to his word is the only understandable response. Biblical doctrine of God in scripture. It's the only response to the biblical doctrine of God in scripture. Here in verse 40, it explicitly says that obedience, that devotion is the only path towards prosperity. Devotion to this God and obedience to his word is the only way to a prosperous life. It's the key, Moses says, God's word says this morning, to a true and a full life. Remember what he's doing. Moses is preparing them to live in the land that God has promised them. He wants it to go well for them. They want it to go well. Remember, they've heard rumors of the people who live there, the, the people that they're going to have to, to, to fight. There's, they're probably faced with fear and uncertainty as they move in there, and Moses is preparing them for the land that the Lord has promised them. And the idea is that righteousness, their obedience to being transformed and live life according to God's word, that righteousness lengthens life and sin shortens it. Righteousness lengthens their life and sin shortens it. And we see that this is a, a theme that will come up again and again throughout Deuteronomy. It's a theme that we see all throughout the Bible. And it's a reality that faces us to this very day. Righteousness lengthens life, but sin threatens to shorten it. Again, remember, Moses is, is preparing them to live in a place that God has promised for them. And it, as you read through the Bible, you understand that there's this theme, what God is ultimately doing, sort of the big theme of the Bible is that he is taking his people, he's giving them his presence, and he's placing them in a place. God's people with God's presence in God's place. Moses is preparing them to occupy that place. Folks, Jesus does the exact same thing for us. If you just quickly turn to John 14, I just want to read three verses out of John 14, where Jesus is doing sort of a similar thing. He's preparing his disciples, not just for a life where he will be no longer sort of walking in their midst, but exalted in heaven. And listen to his words. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. In John 14, ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's telling his disciples that where he is going is to prepare a place for them. And that place is a place where God's people will have full access to God's presence for eternity. For eternity. Jesus ultimately for us fulfills even what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He is, he says himself, the way, the truth, and the life. The key to, to a true, abundant, full life is Jesus, both in eternity, John 14, 1 through 3, and also for now, John 10, 10. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly right now. Not just throughout eternity, not just in heaven, not just the place he's preparing for us, but right now. This is what Jesus offers every single one of us, his very presence. This promise is unbelievable that as his people, we get to experience the full. I mean, think about the unique nature of God that we just got done talking about. He gives us full access to all of who he is. Doesn't hide behind a veil or a, a wall peeking out every now and then. He wants to give himself freely to us. Remember that ultimately our destiny is determined by devotion. But here's the good news. It's not ultimately your devotion or my devotion that secures and cements my destiny. It's his devotion. It's his devotion to us. Second Corinthians says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The only one who was fully devoted to the Father was Jesus. The only one who was fully obedient to, to the Father was Jesus. Obedient even to the point of death, the Bible tells us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because, because through Jesus, God demonstrates his total love and devotion to us as his people, our, our eternity, our destiny is secured because of his devotion, his commitment, his love, his pursuit, his redemption of us. Folks, the only response that makes sense when you consider all that Christ has done for you and for me is to lay it to our heart is to be a people who are fully devoted, fully committed to him and to his word. And if we can do that, things will go well for us. You can take that to the bank. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you just as we think about how you have spoken to us, how you have acted among us in our acting Lord, and how you have loved us. Lord, we thank you for just the demonstration of your love that we, we see in Christ. Lord, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us be a church who is so devoted to you, who's so committed to your word, Lord, that it would saturate every aspect of how we do things around here. Lord, that Sunday mornings would be shaped by your word for your glory. That we would be a people who live lives 
Monday through Saturday who are, who are, who are shaped by your word. Father, I pray, I pray that you would be glorified in this community as a result. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Lord, help us to bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.